Happy New Year, everyone, and welcome back to Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. I'm your host, Mike Wong. We're kicking off 2023 with a very special treat. Over the holidays, I sat down with my sister, Lisa Wong, to ask her about the craft of storytelling. Lisa is an assistant editor for the literary agency Art House Literary. She's also an editorial assistant for Artful Editor, a book editing agency, and a freelance book editor. In today's conversation, Lisa and I are going to talk about what makes a good story, or not, picking apart, as our case study, Ensign Brad Boimler's hollow novel from the Star Trek Lower Decks episode, Crisis Point 2, Paradoxes. And although we weren't intending to talk too much about science in this episode, we couldn't help but see tons of parallels between the craft of storytelling and the scientific method. Ready? Pants me! Uh, we'll explain what that means in just a bit. Lisa Wong, welcome to Strange New Worlds. Thank you, Mike. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here and to talk about Star Trek, of course, and my work. Lisa, you're the first book editor that we've ever had on this podcast, so what an honor. Um, but because you're the first, you're going to have to tell us what a book editor actually is. So what does a book editor entail? Of course. So a book editor is someone who helps writers uh, get their books ready for publication, uh, whether that's traditional publishing, indie publishing, self-publishing. And a book editor really is a broad term, an umbrella term, because it encompasses many types of editors. There's, I'm just going to list off a string here, developmental editors, copy editors, proofreaders, line editors, book coaches, ghost editors, so on and so forth. Oh my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so there's, all the services vary. You know, it can be from just polishing your work to rephrasing sentences and paragraphs to actually brainstorming and fine-tuning ideas, but they really all work to achieve the same goal, and that's to produce high-quality, professional, structurally and grammatically sound books with fantastic stories. So do you find yourself like with an entire manuscript of somebody who's written an entire book or do they come to you one chapter at a time or do they come to you even before they even start writing a book or is it all of the above? Well, that depends on your list of services. Most editors specialize in more than one editing. So developmental editors typically they would receive a full manuscript because the author wants to see if their you know, plot is, is sound, if it makes sense, if their character arcs are realistic, if their characters are, are likable, that sort of thing. And if you were like a ghost writer or a book coach, then someone might come to you with just an overall idea, maybe a couple pages of what they have, but they're coming to you for help in plotting out their book. You know, they say like, oh, I have this great idea and I have this other one, but I'm not sure if I can like mesh them together and I want my character to do this, but I don't know how another aspect fits in. And that's it's sort of like working a puzzle. Mm, so you're like a puzzle coach. <laughs> I, I guess so. Yeah. Can you give me an example, like just one characteristic example of like something that you would do for an author, like maybe a tweak that you would suggest like, oh my gosh, this character arc absolutely sucks. Or like, how, I guess you wouldn't phrase it like that because you're a nice person. But, <laughs> but like when you pick up a book and you are the editor, like what is some kind of like thing that more often than not a suggestion that you might make? Character arcs are a big one. Mm. Um, so I remember there's this one book that was a novella when I was editing it, but the author eventually turned it into a full-length book. And I think she did that based on my suggestion for her character arc, because in the novella, and that's under 50,000 words, she had the premise for a really, really fantastic character arc. Her character was coming off the heels of a, a gigantic loss or a gigantic attack in which like she almost died and she was feeling very vulnerable insecure about herself 
and she was going through this transformation into kind of reclaiming her power, but then becoming too powerful and almost kind of losing her humanity. And then at the very end, she learns to balance her humanity with her kind of magical powers. But that whole arc, I love the arc. I, I told the author that in my report, but the novella was just too short to encompass all of that. Ah. So when I was reading the novella, everything just seemed so crunched together. Everything was so fast. You know, she went from being really vulnerable to suddenly really powerful to <laughs> suddenly finding that, that balance all within, I think it was like 30,000 words. And wow. that just wasn't enough time for anything to feel realistic ah. or for her to, you know, sit with her vulnerability or sit with her higher power, that sort of thing. So I wrote out in my report the kind of vision that I saw, the trajectory of her character growth. And I was pulling out points that like needed to be fleshed out and giving suggestions for scenes that could show what was happening with the character. And basically my end suggestion was, you need to lengthen this out. And that's what happened. She turned it into a book. Oh, that's so great. It must feel so gratifying when that kind of thing happens, when uh, you see something, some potential, like almost like you've identified an egg and you're like, nurture that egg because it can hatch into a full grown book. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. And that's, that's really fun too, because I had several nights where I was just staying up and, and thinking about this book, like thinking about like, oh, what would be the best way to approach this? How could you get the best out of the book, the best out of these characters? And it's, it's always really nice when the author takes your suggestions to heart and actually implements those changes because everything that a book editor does is a suggestion, mm -hmm. really. And you have to be very careful when you're giving back edits because, you know, writers are sensitive you know? <laughs> <laughs> and uh they don't always i mean they do want to be critiqued but you have to be gentle about it yeah so. we're all human exactly so lisa what are your favorite genres of books to edit and why i'm going to have to start with fantasy okay and i know that's very broad but i love all types of fantasy i would say particularly epic and high fantasy low fantasy too for those of us who are not fantasy nerds, what's the difference between epic high fantasy and low fantasy? So epic fantasy, think of something like Lord of the Rings. Okay. Lord of the Rings, and I think probably Game of Thrones too could be considered epics. Hmm. High fantasy, well actually there's debate over whether <laughs> Harry Potter is high or low fantasy. Ooh, it might be considered low fantasy because you know, there's the, the muggle world, which is exactly like our world, but there's just oh. a magical addendum to it. Interesting. Um, yeah. So high fantasy, I'm trying to think of a good example for it. I was going to say the Witcher, but Witcher might be considered epic. So there's a lot of, uh, <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of um, crossover yeah. with, with these genres. But it's almost like um, it's like the distance it is away from just the everyday normal human life exactly, exactly oh, okay yeah. okay lord of the it. rings is like like way out there mm -hmm. and then harry potter is probably much lower and i don't, I don't say lower in the sense that it's worse yeah it's just that it's it, more adjacent to us yeah exactly okay exactly. okay got it got it cool so you like editing high fantasy you were saying yeah i mean i love all types of fantasy let's let's say that first mm -hmm. um but i do like the epic and high fantasy because that really takes me into the other world. And Got it. there's like no comparison. There's no normal world that I can really relate to. So I'm just like, I'm just thrown into this kind of fantastical, magical realm. And I really like that. And I have to say, this all started with Harry Potter, mm -hmm. which I know can be a little divisive these days. And I don't condone any of J.K. Rowling's <laughs> recent comments or anything. But I, I have to say, her series has had overall a hugely positive impact on my life and i think on many other people's lives yeah as well. me too yeah especially our generation so harry potter is actually one of the first series that i ever read and actually uh mom read it to us to me and john mm -hmm. in first grade might have been even starting in kindergarten and i remember liking the story so much or as much as i could follow at that age so i was like i'm gonna read this myself because I felt like I wasn't getting the most out of mom reading it to me. <laughs> so I started to read it, um, but I was like six. So I, I barely knew any of the words. So I was like, okay, I'm going to put this down. 
I'm going to come back to it in a couple years. And I did. And I don't want to sound like religious or anything, but I felt like I had a revelation. I, I was so mind blown. I loved it. I, I, I felt like my soul was being spoken to. I felt like I was there with Harry and Ron and Hermione and all the Hogwarts cast. I just loved all the creatures, just the magical aspect of everything. And the fact that the books were coming out as we were getting older, that just added to like the the excitement and the drama. And this is what I mean by saying we really grew up with Harry Potter. And I think it's shaped a lot of our beliefs, our values, our perspectives. And I think it just kind of helped open up our minds to all these, you know, fantastical, unbelievable, magical realities or whatever. It helps us see the magic in, in ordinary life too. Oh, yeah. Well, thanks for sharing that story. That's really wonderful. Of course. So yeah, fantasy is my number one. Always. I will always, always love fantasy. And I'll probably edit anything remotely related to fantasy. <laughs> Other ones I like science fiction, of course, because look who I'm talking to. <laughs> <laughs> yes, sorry, I can take part of the blame for that. Oh, no, no blame at all. Um, recently, I've been getting into thrillers. I like historical fiction as well, literary fiction, but I haven't edited much of that, mm -hmm. and memoirs for nonfiction. Those are just ones that I've been reading more consistently lately. That's uh, quite a wide diversity. So like you said, in addition to growing up with Harry Potter, you also grew up with Star Trek because you grew up with me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, I know that now as an adult, you like the show independently. You've been following especially Star Trek Lower Decks, which is what we're mainly here to talk about today. Lisa, what are your general impressions of Star Trek Lower Decks? I love Lower Decks because it's a very unique and creative angle. And Honestly, I, I can't believe that it took this long to think of this particular premise. <laughs> because now that they have it, it seems like such a it seems like such an obvious take, you know? Yeah. To create a show from the perspective of the crew that we never thought about, that we never really knew about, uh, the people who actually like literally keep the ship running but don't get any of the limelight. I think that's just pure genius. Because mm -hmm. In all the other Star Trek seasons, sure, the cast changes, but we're always following the bridge crew, right? So, of course, there's going to be some recycling there. But this is just, this just blows the doors wide open. <laughs> you know, now it really feels like the final frontier. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's the, the lower decks, time to shine. And I think the core group, Boimler, Mariner, Tendi, and, and Rutherford, are all very dynamic characters. And they, they play off each other very well, too. Yeah. And and I like that Lower Decks. I think it's a little funnier than other Star Trek. Not just a little bit. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> uh, it's it's a lot funnier, but I it still tackles, you know, tough topics. Yeah. Too. And I think Star Trek has always done that balance very well. Yeah. So I'm glad that Lower Decks is following that, but you know, more on the funnier side. It's oh, definitely yeah. my humor. <laughs> That's so great. <laughs> So specifically today, we're going to be talking about the Lower Decks episode called Crisis Point 2 Paradoxus, which is the eighth episode of season three of this marvelous show. Mm -hmm. So in this episode, Ensign Brad Boimler crafts his own hollow novel, which is, I guess, something that we were first introduced to, I think, on Voyager, where Tom Paris, you know, becomes like an author of his own hollow novels um, and uh, the doctor as well. But anyway, Boimler, Boimler carries on this tradition and he's actually writing a sequel to ensign mariner's original crisis point which uh was one of her creations um kind of actually co-opting one of boimler's <laughs> holiday programs that was all the way back in season one so the particular story that we're going to be talking about here in crisis point two follows uh boimler's character captain bucephalus dagger and his mission to stop evil romulan triplets from using a tool called the chronogami to rewrite history and wipe the Federation from existence. Now, um, because of this element of the chronogami, there is a major plot point here, which is time travel. And time travel is kind of a cliche in the Star Trek universe at this point. I feel like one thing that Lower Decks does so brilliantly is that it uh, it kind of makes fun of Star Trek by laughing alongside of it. Mm -hmm. And so it's sort of subtly like 
<laughs> and I'm like, yeah, this is like totally a Star Trek movie because it has time travel in it. And <laughs> what good Star Trek movie doesn't have time travel in it? Um, so anyway, it's it, it's definitely a trope. It's definitely a cliche. And whether it's sci-fi, fantasy, or romance, I bet you encounter a lot of cliches in the books that come across your desk. Um, so when you receive something like that, how do you advise authors who are falling into the trap of just rehashing an old cliche? Do you try to get them to be a little bit more original in their writing? Or do you just tell them, go dive headfirst into that cliche and just do it better than it's ever been done before? Great question. And first of all, I think it's important that we know the difference between a trope and a cliche. Okay. So actually, and and this is my own opinion, I don't think I would call time travel a cliche. Ooh. Uh, It's most definitely a trope, which is any tried and true story element that readers like, and they also come to expect. So Star Trek viewers are going to expect time travel. Yes. Definitely a trope. Other examples in romance, it can be like, the bad guy falling for the girl. Mm. In fantasy, it could be the chosen one. Mm-hmm. And cliches are overused tropes that then become stale. Ah. So I don't think time travel, I don't think the general concept of time travel falls into that camp. But that being said, I think certain branches of time travel, like how the time travel is used in the story, are cliches. So one such example might be using time travel to make the protagonist go back to meet their younger or their older self and gain some sort of wisdom or, or do something with them. Oh. Or going back in time and being paranoid about messing anything up to alter the current timeline. Because those show up in almost every single rendition of time travel. So using time travel in that way can be construed as boring, lazy, stale. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what turns it into a cliché. But I think overall, time travel has not yet reached that state. I see. Okay, so just to recap for my own understanding, a trope is defined as something that happens a lot in a certain genre. Mm -hmm. And a cliche is when that certain trope happens so much that it's just boring, bland, too expected. Yes, so much in the same way. Ah, got it. Okay, okay. And so in this particular episode that Boimler wrote, where... The chronogami is used by the Romulans to go and sabotage the Federation. Is that a trope or is that a cliche? So they're using this really, really powerful, dangerous weapon to go and destroy a larger organization. Yes. That might be cliche. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just thinking. Yeah, yeah. Mm, yeah, so I, I think I think so, because there's always some object, mysteriously powerful object that comes out of nowhere, right, mm-hmm. that the bad guys inevitably find and the good guys have to go steal back. And, and yeah, so yeah, I think that would be cliche. <laughs> and so t- to answer your original question, my advice to authors is to constantly be researching and reading in their genre and whatever genres that they want to write about so that they can stay on top of what tropes there are and which ones have become cliches and what those cliches are, and then perhaps also the ones that are on the cusp of becoming cliches. That way they have not some knowledge of, of what not to use and they can focus their effort on changing the trope that they are using. And another important point, don't avoid using tropes. Because like, as I mentioned before, uh, readers like them. There's a reason they have stayed in the genre for so long. And to some extent, the readers are going to be expecting them. But I think the key to using a trope is to just change it enough so that it's noticeably different from how other authors have used it. And I wouldn't necessarily say to do it better than ever before, because you have to be really careful about how you word things to writers. If you say, yeah, just go for it and and make it better than anything else, that could paralyze them. That could literally stop them from writing. Or it, it could create writer's block, because they might come up with something and then they're always going to second-guess themselves. Is this really better than what that author did? Is Is this... Is this actually better? Am I, am, I, am I doing enough? And I've, I've come across that way too many times. So I, I try to be so, so careful about my wording 
to writers. I just tell them it needs to be different enough. Of course, everyone wants to be original, but there's hardly anything original in writing anymore. You're going to be piggybacking off someone else, but just throw in a little twist. Make it different enough. Change it slightly. Sometimes that's all you need to do, and sometimes that's what you have to do. And I don't think writers should feel bad about that. I love this insight of not shying away from tropes because they are tropes for a reason, because they're successful. And how your job is to take a trope often and just tweak it a little bit to make it a little bit more novel. And this this discussion makes me realize how much science and writing mirror each other. Um, so like in science, you know, you, you want to take a well-worn and well-tested kind of experimental procedure. You don't want to just make up something crazy on your own. Mm-hmm. Um, you want to rely on things that people have done before and that have been proven. Um, but you don't want to do something that has been so proven that it's no longer novels, you know, that somebody would like, why did you even do this study? We all knew this result anyway. That would be like the scientific equivalent of a cliche. Mm-hmm. But you do want to rely on your trope somewhat, but then take a trope, take a take an experimental procedure, and then add your own little twist on it so that it becomes something a little bit new and you're adding something new to the scientific literature. Just like you would advise authors to rely on the tropes, but then add their own spin to add something new to the fantasy literature or the sci-fi literature. That's so cool. Yeah, exactly. So back to the Star Trek episode that we're talking about. Shortly after the Hollow novel begins, uh, Boimler is actually called out of the holodeck to Commander Ransom's office, who informs the Ensign that his transporter clone, William Boimler, has died aboard the USS Titan. Mm. And so when Boimler returns to the holodeck to participate in his Hollow novel as Captain Bucephalus Dagger, oh my gosh, that name. Um, Love the name. <laughs> he is so clearly distressed distraught over the news of his clone's untimely death and begins to deviate from the hollow novel's original plotline. So, for instance, at the top-secret research station on Europa, the crew meets Dr. Helena Gibson, who is supposed to be Dagger's love interest, but Boimler, you know, being so distraught over the news of his twin's death, can't bring himself to become interested in the romantic subplot any longer. And and Mariner, seeing this, can't believe her eyes. She says, wait, you can't cut out the romantic subplot. A good movie's got to have some romance. All right, uh, this is where we set a course for Tattashore 9. So let's do that. Wait, Bucephalus, could we talk privately? Ooh, here comes the romance in three, two, one. No, thanks. I, I, I gotta go. No thanks. Wait, you can't cut out the romantic subplot? A good movie's got to have some romance. Dagger's love life doesn't matter anymore. Wait, then why'd you design her so hot? I don't know what to do now. Uh, yeah, me either, lady. Okay, bye. Now, Lisa, as an editor, what are your (laughs) thoughts on romantic subplots? Do you agree with Mariner? Is romance a must for a good story? Oh, boy. What a question. My answer is going to be a little long-winded. But here is the bottom line. No, I don't agree. Okay. I don't think stories need romance to be good, but I think we as a culture are just so used to seeing it and looking for it that we expect it to show up in our stories. Ah. And I think it goes both ways. We look for it, and then there are institutions like Hollywood that spitfire them out for us, which sends us an ever-present looping signal that stories and ourselves are incomplete without a romantic storyline or subplot. And I'm not saying that romantic subplots are all bad, because they can definitely do a world of good for a story. I just don't think enough writers really think about if romance is necessary for their story. I think they'll just throw it in because that's what's expected of them. Mm-hmm. And I would argue that for each good they create, there's also a bad side to it that is often overlooked. Interesting. So the first argument that I often hear for romance is that it creates tension. Okay. Which is great. Every story needs tension. That's that's non-debatable. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it needs it. And romance by nature creates drama and conflict for a story to thrive on. So it often acts as kind of a nice base for which writers can start to push their story forward. However, and here I'm talking about books where romance is a subplot, so Mm -hmm. not the romance genre. Okay. So the catch with this is that often romantic tension gets overplayed or underplayed. So say the main character has a partner 
and, and they're butting heads throughout the story. And having this romantic tension that adds to the overall tension coming from the main plot can sometimes, if the author doesn't handle it well, doesn't play with the balance, it can create too much in the book. It can split readers' attention, almost like there's two giants vying for attention and the author doesn't know which one to prioritize. Mm. On the flip side, and I see this perhaps more often, romance gets underplayed. Okay. The author builds it up, the, the main character has a romantic interest, but it eventually leads to nowhere. Huh. You know? It'll just fizzle and it'll die because the main plot will take over and we get swept away by everything else that's going on. Yeah. And then typically at the end, the, the author will be like, oh crap, I forgot about this romantic subplot. You know, I'm just going to push the character in and we're going to tie it up with a pretty little bow. And that can be very unsatisfying. Because you're like, well, the first part had this romantic character, and then there's this huge gap in the middle where they're completely missing, and then they come back at the very end. And it's like, well, what happened to you? Where were you doing this whole time? <laughs> like, why are you even here at all? Does the main character really need you or mm. need this romance if it wasn't present at all for three quarters of the book? And I think that's why it's really hard to write stories with a good romantic subplot, because it's so hard to find that balance. You know, if this book is not in the romance genre, because then obviously the romance is the plot. But I think so many writers use romance as a crutch, as an easy way to add tension that doesn't actually add anything to the story and it doesn't mix in well with the main plot. And I think as a reader, you can always tell when that's the case, because you feel like you're being pulled out of the main plot to now read about this romantic subplot that either doesn't go anywhere or starts to take over everything. Hmm. I, I think Boimler's episode was about to fall into that um, mistake that you just outlined, where the romantic subplot is just like so um, thin that you're like, why is this even here kind of thing? And I, I feel like if he were to have engaged with Dr. Gibson on this station, you would have been like, OK, but then what? Like this has nothing really to do with the main driving arc of the story which is stopping the Romulans from using the Kronigami to, to end the, f the Federation. Right, right. And like was she gonna come with them or were they just gonna have like a little fling where, <laughs> right where they were and then he leaves again? Um, and if she does come with them, you know, is their romance gonna start to overtake? Mm, yeah, know? yeah. And just another really small point too, I think still nowadays a, lo a lot of writers use romance to make female characters more interesting. Mm. You know, there's this whole idea that, you know, the f this character is not compelling if she's not someone's partner, mm -hmm. which is obviously an awful thing to perpetuate. But I think that it is a big blind spot for many authors. And we saw that in the, unfortunately, in the J.J. The Abrams Star Trek movies, mm. the latest ones where Uhura was really the only like female lead character which you know i guess was just something that they had to inherit from the 60s show because they were sort of rebooting that series although of course you know they could have made some kind of decision to have another female bridge officer because it was a brand new timeline after all but they decided uhura was the only it was going to be the only female lead character and then of course she was like spock's partner uh, all of a sudden like out yeah. of the blue romantic you know because i guess they decided you know, I don't want to put words into the writer's mouths or whatever, because those movies on the whole were pretty good. But um, but it was a point of distress for me that um, it seems like they were playing into exactly this problem that you're talking about here, where your one female character is now a romantic interest of one of your male characters to probably uh, boost her interest as a character. Exactly. Like there's nothing else about her whole person that could possibly catch the audience's attention other right. than a relationship. Yeah, yeah. So. Well, I'm glad Star Trek Strange New Worlds, uh, which does have a young Uhura in it, has multiple uh, female characters in it, and they are not all in relationships. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Exactly. So another point for romance is to make characters relatable, you know, particularly in young adult. And before I get a little bit more into that, I just want to make a quick note that your genre is going to affect your story's potential for romance. For example, if you're writing YA, you should be perhaps cognizant of the fact that your readers will likely come in with a greater expectation for romance than, say, readers, and I'm just using this as an example, 
sci-fi. Mm-hmm. Of course, it's not to say that there's no romance in sci-fi, because <laughs> we all can think of examples that prove otherwise. Yeah. But YA follows teenage protagonists who are dealing with coming-of-age issues that typically include a first relationship. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So readers are going to be looking for that. So with that said, it's easy for authors to want to include romance because the majority of people are going to connect to it. You know, mm-hmm. it's like surely a home run. But I just want to say, and I know this can be a touchy topic, that I think representation is very important to consider. In some ways, including romance in a story is as normal as thinking that all characters in a book are white mm. when their description is vague or description's not there. It's the current norm, you know? Yeah, yeah. And it's something that I think the publishing industry needs to continue to address because recently there's this whole diversity representation push in in publishing. Yeah. And so what about representation for those who are asexual, aromantic? Um, We have to fight for continued diversity and equality, and that includes publishing more books that are accurate and show consistent representation for everyone. And I would highly recommend anyone who's looking to to read more about this topic, um, Angela Chen's article, We Need More Books Without Romance. Mm. on electric literature it's from 2018 and we can include the link yeah we'll we'll put that in the show notes for sure yeah so she she talks about how romantic drama has basically eclipsed all other forms of tension because it's the norm and how the ubiquity of them suggests that romance is by far the most compelling aspect of human experience and how only romance can create these big emotions this like drama that we're looking for and in doing so drastically undervalues things like friendship family and ourselves and of course she goes into i think her experience with a friend who who's asexual and and searching for books that you know are more accurately represent them that's so cool yeah i'm looking forward to reading that article so to cap this very long-winded answer Uh, I don't think romance is necessary for a good story. I think it can definitely help your story, depending on what it's about and who your characters are. But I would really urge every writer to take more time and think about if romance is really necessary and adds value to their story and adds depth to their characters. Because the last thing you want as an author is for your romantic subplot to feel shoehorned. And I think, again, that's why having an editor is such a necessity having just an outside pair of eyes to to look over and, and see if it really fits within the puzzle of your book. This is such wonderful insight, Lisa. For our uh, Star Trek book nerds out there, uh, one really good coming-of-age story that I read recently was uh, Una McCormick's Star Trek Discovery novel about Sylvia Tilly, young Sylvia Tilly, trying to find her way. I think it's called uh, The Way to the Stars. And it doesn't have any romantic subplot in it, as far as I can remember. It was mostly about Tilly trying to find her way, having this like very prestigious Starfleet diplomat mother, (laughs) and uh, trying to understand what her place in the universe was. But anyway, back to Star Trek Lower Decks and Boimler's movie. (laughs) So at the crew's next stop, Tatascore 9, Boimler begins to deviate yet again from the main plot line of his story and begins to interact with some of the randomly generated background characters. I need answers. Then you see Kitia. Legend says he resides on the Forbidden Moon. What are you doing? The holodeck just populated that guy into the background for color. I sense purple head knows much. If one such as he is drawn to this place, so shall what he in reside. the alien of the week uh, bullshit? Okay, boys, come on. We have a movie to do, man. We don't have time to chat up the extras. It's an adaptive program. The, the, the holodeck's creating meaning for these guys. I've got a lock! Now, Lisa, real-life book authors may not have access to adaptive programs yet that can just generate awesome side characters with big backstories and meanings. So how do you coach your authors in giving their minor characters meaningful roles? Because I feel like on the one hand, you want those characters to be substantial enough that the reader isn't wondering, like, why is this person even in the book? But at the same time, you can't really bog down the reader with irrelevant backstories for every single name in the book. So how do you strike that balance? You know, this is a funny question, and I can't speak for all editors out there, but in my experience, 
I find authors actually have an easier time crafting minor characters and giving them meaning oh. than the protagonist and antagonist. And I'm not exactly sure why this is the case, but I'm going to harbor a guess that there's less pressure on the author to get these characters right. So that allows them more freedom to do what they want, to have more fun with these characters. And I think that comes out in how these characters are written. Something that I often see is that side characters are a lot more dynamic, dare I say interesting, <laughs> than the do-good protagonist or the all-evil antagonist. Yeah. Uh, they tend to be more morally gray. Um, they can kind of shift between the sides of good and evil more easily because it's just like, oh, it's a side character. Yeah, you can do what they want. And off the top of my head, I can recall a manuscript that I edited. It was, I think, woman's fiction mm -hmm. with a lot of romance. <laughs> <laughs> Where the main character's sister was probably one of the most brilliant characters I'd ever read. And she literally jumped off the page every time she showed up. And she was only in a couple chapters. Comparatively, the main character felt like a drab. You know, mm. She's like, oh my god, this character is so boring. I, I honestly wanted the sister to be the main character. Yeah. So obviously there needed to be a lot of editing for the main character. But it was easy to see with her sister, you know, what role she played in the book and what she meant to the main character. You know, she was the person who lit the fire under, under her sister, who pushed her to do things to get her out of her comfort zone, that sort of thing. So again, to answer your question, because I, I did not answer it there, <laughs> I think just drafting up a quick and here emphasis on quick backstory for each supporting character is a good place to start. I know that writers love to put in details about everything, create like a 50-page report on, on every character's backstory. But here, you really just want to boil it down to the necessities. And you're going to ask yourself the normal questions you ask yourself for any character. Why are they in the book at all? What do they represent? What are they bringing to the story? Are they a foil? Are they here as an obstacle for the protagonist? Are they here to uplift the protagonist? What's their role? And I, I like to say for minor characters, light on information, but sharp on meaning. Ooh, light on information, sharp on meaning. I mm -hmm. love it. <laughs> I feel like this plays into why Star Trek Lower Decks is such a brilliant show, because it literally takes what would have been those side characters on some other Star Trek show, characters whom we probably would have been like, oh, I want to learn more about that like hyperactive Orion who's always in sickbay <laughs> or like that, you know, broody kind of like rebellious Ensign Mariner. What's mm -hmm. she all about? And makes them the center of attention and really um, gives them the, the limelight, but then also relegates the bridge crew to those like background characters, the side characters, and sort of to toys around with us. I love when um, Lieutenant Shax dies in the mm. first season and then comes back mysteriously in the second season. And the um, the main characters, our ensigns, just, you know, can't get over the fact that he somehow magically reappeared. And it's like, yeah, from their perspective, they just wouldn't would never uh, know that like main story arc. Um, but from their eyes, you know, they're just like bewildered. And <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah, it's brilliant. I love Rutherford in that. He's like, he just couldn't let it go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How did he come back to life? Uh, anyway, um, you know, on this world. Catascore 9, this sort of desert planet where there's this amazing chase scene. Um, Boimler is just so carried away, so engrossed by his interactions with the background characters that the holodeck has generated, and he starts to just, like, improvise with them. The path to Kitia is perilous, but the reward is all the truths of the universe. This could be the key to it all. We gotta do this. This? What is this? These random extras? I am Nick Knack. Case in point. Now what the hell does finding some weirdo have to do with your story? We're, we're gonna go find the meaning of life. This is better than what I wrote. This is important. Important? What? No, this was supposed to be a thrill ride. Nah, that chase uh. sequence wasn't gonna be fun anyway. Do writers ever get into some kind of flow state where they're kind of doing what Boimler is doing here. They abandon their initial story ideas and they just start following their instincts and let their characters take over the plot. Have you ever experienced this or have you ever heard of this phenomenon? Oh yeah, uh, both experienced it myself and 
and heard of it from other people. This is actually a very interesting and common topic among writers groups and forums, and I think I think it's something that happens to all writers. Although many will say no, and the people who often say no are plotters. Do you know the concept of plotter versus pantser? No, please educate me. <laughs> okay, so a, a well, people like to divide writers into two groups: plotter and pantser. Plotters are people who thoroughly outline their novel before they start anything, and they'll go into detail about about anything and everything about their characters, about their world. Maybe they'll even go so far as to draft up every single scene in every chapter, or draft up every chapter. Basically, they have a strict plot and structure that they're going to follow, or that they think they're going to follow.、Mm-hmm. By contrast, pantsers—that term has been coined by the expression "fly by the seat of your pants." Oh, I get it. Okay, yeah, like a- <laughs> you're flying by the seat of your pants, for- so you're a pantser. <laughs> exactly. So they're just. Diving straight in without any plan, without any idea of what they might even write about, and they're just gonna let the wind take them where they go. And, and so those would be the people who, I guess, start with a flow state, and they have no initial story ideas. So they they're drafting up a character, and then they're letting the character write the story, essentially. But to get back to your question, I think this flow state does happen to all writers. I don't think all writers recognize it, and I think some may fight against it to stay loyal to their original idea.、Mm. And I think while letting characters run rampant over your plot is not always a good idea, I think ignoring your flow state can be just as bad as well. What I mean by that is I think characters are always going to surprise you、mm-hmm. when you're writing, which really is an amazing thing if you think about it.、I、like mean- knickknack. <laughs> <laughs> like knickknack. I mean, yeah. Who would have thought he was gonna fall in love with Boimler and save him from those weirdo people? <laughs> I mean, it, it's really interesting that we create these characters, yet they can influence how our story is gonna turn out in ways we can't even conceive of in the first place. And I think, in my opinion, they are doing that when your writing becomes difficult, when it feels like you're forcing a scene. When you're forcing characters to interact, to do something together, when it doesn't flow, when the writing doesn't excite you, and this is solely my opinion, that that's when your characters are telling you that you're going the wrong way, or you need to readjust your angle. And when I say it doesn't excite you, like the writing, I don't mean that you need to be happy writing it, because what if you're writing a murder scene or you're describing abuse?、Mm. You know, you're not going to be happy writing about that. But what I mean is, if it feels like you're fighting tooth and nail for every word, probably means you might be on the wrong path. For dark or unseemly topics that you know we may not want to write them, but、uh-huh. I think there's a certain flow that comes with the writing when we need to write about them, when it's essential for the story, and we know that we can't take another way. You know, so it's not a happy feeling, but there is a certain ease to your writing. So that flow is not always going to be comfortable. But it doesn't also feel like you're picking words out of a haystack, you know. Yeah. But that's just my opinion. Yeah, yeah, that's really powerful. Yeah, like follow that flow, even if it's an uncomfortable subject, even if you're basically feeling lost, like Boimler, feeling completely lost in life because of the news of his transporter clone's death.、Mm-hmm. He was really following his instincts. He was pantsing <laughs> in his own hollow novel by talking to these. Random side characters. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So while Boimler was pantsing, <laughs> <laughs> Mariner was just absolutely fed up, and she leaves the holodeck for her meeting with Commander Ransom, and that's where she learns about William Boimler's death aboard the Titan. And so, to be a good friend, she returns to the holodeck to console Boimler and see that movie through. And eventually, that pair. Boimler and Mariner find their way to the third moon of Shatanari, where Kitiha resides. And so Kitiha is basically this impressive rock god who supposedly has the answer to life's meaning, but when probed, it merely turned out to be a cheesy quote generator. I am Kitiha, 
You have journeyed far. What truth do you seek? A man named William Boimler died. It was meaningless. What is life for? The purpose of life is a life of purpose. Okay, but what about what I was asking? Love without trust is a river without water. Yeah, these are just inspirational quotes. I, I, I wanted the meaning of life. Life is like a cup of tea. It's all in how you stick you the water. Are you kidding me? You're supposed to be the almighty. Oh, there is always a catch with these god stories. The holodeck just made a cheesy quote generator. But we, we came all this way. I want answers. Laughter and a good night's sleep. Shut will. up. <laughs> so, Lisa, this has got to be a huge worry for writers who want to delve into deep issues about the human condition in their stories. How do you write something profound about the meaning of life or anything else about the human condition without sounding like a vapid internet quote generator? <laughs> First of all, that was really hilarious in, in the episode. Yeah. I, just, I just loved how it like didn't stop. It just kept saying all, all these ridiculous quotes. But the, yeah, this is a great question and it's a tough one. So I, I would advise taking... A quote, whatever quote or quotes you think best summarizes what you want to say about the facet of human condition you're exploring, and use that not as a final punchline like it appeared in this episode, but as like the underlying underlying theme of your book, Ooh. the inspiration for your scenes, for where your character starts and ends, for who and what they interact with. So take the remains of the day. <laughs> I Kazuo. was waiting for when this book would come. Spoiler alert, audience, this is Lisa's favorite novel. <laughs> yes, it is. By Kazuo Ishiguro. Um, or Ish, as I like to call him. <laughs> so yes, of course, I'm going to reference him here. In this book, Stevens, the butler, goes through a long revelation that he has wasted his life and loyalty serving the wrong man, mm. right? A man who was kind and naive to a destructive fault. Okay. So this is shown and emphasized through Stephen's memories of his service, through his talks with Lord Darlington, through his often awkward run-ins with Miss Kenton, and it's illustrated at every turn where he continually employs his reserved and stiff manner. Uh... Ishiguro shows us at the beginning what is most important to Stevens, his unfailing loyalty, his desire to be remembered as great and dignified, just like Lord Darlington did. Mm. And now, in the twilight of his life, after he realizes that he lost a great opportunity to create more for himself than just work, he's on the brink of slipping into despair, right? And who wouldn't be? But in the final scenes of this book, he notices a group of younger people. Mm-hmm who, through simple observation, renew his desire to make something better of the time that he has left, you know? Yeah. Now, what I've just said, this whole summary of the book, can easily be summed up to some internet quote. Something like, <laughs> you cannot change your past, you can only move forward and make the best of what you have. That sounds like something Katiha would yeah. say. <laughs> no, I don't, yeah, but I don't know if that's an actual quote from someone or somewhere. But it sums up the whole premise and meaning of the remains of the day. Mm -hmm. Stevens cannot change what he had already done, which was steadfastly support a Nazi sympathizer and spurned a great personal opportunity. Yeah. But that doesn't mean his life is over. You know, That doesn't mean he can't continue to improve himself, make circumstances better, which he acknowledges on the last page by saying that he will try twice as hard to master the topic of bantering, which is what... <laughs> so profoundly confused him in the beginning of the book. So, I mean, that's a great insight into human condition, I mm -hmm. think. And I think the whole book sums that up. And it didn't just spout out this quote, you can't change your past thing, but it was literally illustrated in every scene of the book, in every interaction that Stevens had, you know, when he's lamenting over his too slow realization that Lord Darlington was going to support the Nazis. And, and, and it, shows his, it shows his coming around to the fact that he has to live down what he's done and he has to somehow push forward 
and onward through that, even though it it, it like breaks him and, and pains him to accept accept all of the the wrong he's done in supporting Lord, Lord Darlington. So. I'm not exactly sure where I was going with that. I, but I think I know. You and I both have some journalism background. And one thing they always tell us in journalism is show, don't tell. <laughs> and I feel like you're saying exactly this. Like in your book, you could literally tell somebody something about the meaning of life by just having one internet quote at the end of your story. Or you could go the Remains of the Day by Kazuo Ishiguro route where you take that quote, you don't even put the quote in the book, but you make that the theme of the entire arc of the story and everything that the character experiences. And that's sort of like showing rather than telling. Like nobody ever says that quote, you know, you can't change your past, you can only change the future. But it is what the main character, this butler, learns over the course of 200 pages or so. Right. It's, it's yeah, you just hit, yeah, you're totally right. Well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I I, I want to say, like, the quote is embedded in Stephen's personal transformation. Mm-hmm. And I think that is a great way to overcome this problem of um, exploring a human condition without sounding cheesy. So I think my advice would be to read these sort of books. If you're going to write a book similar to this, is read the books that have done it well And read like a writer, meaning you read to question the author's every choice. Mm. So you understand why this scene is here or why this character did what he did at this particular spot in the book. And I think that sort of deconstruction of a book that has done this well will be really helpful in in learning how to plot your own. But yeah, thanks for saving me there. That was fantastic. (laughs) I was like, oh, God, of course it's show versus tell. (laughs) You're welcome. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I'm always here for you as a brother or a podcast host. <laughs> Aw, thank you. Um, so getting to the very end of this Star Trek Lower Decks episode now, Boimler basically is so enraged at Katiha at the uh, incredibly stupid revelation that Katiha is actually the Kitty Hawk Wright Brothers flyer. And, you know, Boimler just submits to dehydration, slips into a coma, is pronounced clinically dead, but inside of his mind or wherever he goes, he meets Captain Sulu, who is on Kirk's ranch in Idaho. And Sulu says to Boimler, Would you like to feed the horsey? Uh, sure. I I didn't program any of this. I was in the holodeck trying to find meaning in the randomness of death, but I just made a fool of myself. Brad, I've lost many friends, some heroically, some tragically. The randomness of death is merely a reflection of the unexpected joys we find in life. So if I spend my life worrying about a meaningless death, I'll never find joy? I literally just said that. Sorry. Thanks, Captain Sulu. I think I can live with that. Happy to help a fellow Starfleet officer looking for answers. Those are pretty good words of wisdom. Do you have any reaction to that as a writer? You know, I I don't have much on this, really. I think I think it's a perfect quote. I think it makes absolute sense. The more you enjoy your life, the less you'll seek out a meaningful death or the less you'll seek to find meaning in death, I guess. If you live your life encumbered by unnecessary worry, such as the worry of dying without meaning, like Boimler did, you're basically casting this cloud over your whole life and you're going to find it really difficult to find joy elsewhere or anywhere, really. But if you live free in that sense, then you open yourself up to experiencing joys from every single avenue that you explore. And, you know, that's just how I interpret it. I I, I don't want to say anything else. I want to leave this quote alone because I think it's beautiful. <laughs> fair enough, fair <laughs> enough. So while Boimler and Mariner were on their little side quest, pantsing to find Katiha, <laughs> I love that term, I'm going to use it so much now. <laughs> um, in the main plot line of the movie, the original plot line that Boimler had written, Tendi, Rutherford, and everyone else go after the chronogami and try to stop the Romulans. And in that plot line, by playing that role, Tendi discovers that she actually wants to be a captain one day. And in a way, Boimler's original story was incredibly meaningful, maybe not to him, but to 
Tendi, it may have changed Tendi's career path forever. Ooh, smells like fried Romulan in here, huh, guys? <laughs> Woof, someone crack a window. <laughs> Damn it, Rutherford! Why aren't you taking this seriously? Because we're having fun. What's the big deal? This isn't fun for me. Would you laugh this much if I was really the captain in real life? Sorry, if you were what? Nobody would believe in me as a captain. You don't even care about this story at all. You want to be a captain? Yes! Oh, wow. I I've never said that out loud before. Yes, yes, I do. Tenda, you'd be a great captain. You don't need a movie to prove that. <laughs> really? Are you kidding? I'd want you as my captain anytime. Oh, I can't even tell you what that means to me. Captain Vesper, your crew is ready. What are your orders? I imagine that this is probably a goal for many writers, that in the process of reading their work, readers will discover something new about themselves through engaging with the work. And so as a person who crafts stories, Lisa, is this something that you know, you can plan for, or is this kind of personal discovery always unexpected? I think it's a little bit of both, to be honest, because I think most authors do want readers to be able to take something away from their book, but it's not always a personal lesson. It can be just opening their eyes to a new perspective or a new way of thinking about a particular problem. But most authors write books to answer questions that they have themselves, right? Or to offer commentary on a particular aspect of society, mm. something they find interesting. So they're hoping that readers will get something out of that, that they'll find that topic interesting. But I don't think they ever truly plan for personal discoveries like the one that happened to Tendi, because how can you plan for that? Reading subjective you never know how a reader is going to respond to your work, what they might find interesting, what they might find dull, what resonates with them, etc. So you can't plan for your book to have this specific personal discovery, the same personal discovery for everyone. And like you and I have discussed before, I think where someone is in their life can heavily impact the way they perceive a book and what they get out of that book. For example, and this is one of Isha's books again, sorry, <laughs> like how A Pale View of Hills resonated with me so strongly when I was working at the retirement community mm -hmm. because that book reflected so many of the honest and heartbreaking conversations I had with those residents about having children yeah. and what you know they might have done differently if they could go back. Um, obviously, authors can't plan for things like that. They have no idea where someone, where someone might be in life when they pick up their book. And I think that's something very important when it comes to a book revealing hidden parts of ourselves that we don't even know about. So overall, no, I don't think these discoveries are ever planned or can be planned by the author. I think they're more like happy little accidents. I really love what you said about how for the author, it's not really writing to have that specific effect on the reader. The author is writing to understand something themselves. Mm -hmm. It reminds me of an art teacher that I had in high school who painted in addition to teaching at our high school. And he once told me that people often mistake his paintings as like trying to express something to the outside world, but really he painted to understand himself. And I was like, whoa. Now I don't paint, so I don't have that <laughs> kind of, you know, but 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 I do write and I feel like that's so true of writing too. Like I I'm not writing to express something to my reader so much as I'm writing to just try to understand a concept myself. And this happens all the time in science writing, actually. You know, it's, it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I am eventually writing to publish this thing to like share it with the world so that they can understand something too. But actually, I'm trying to work it out myself here. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess the same thing is true of literary writing. Yeah, I love the, mi the mirrors that we're uncovering here between science writing and and literary writing. Another right. one that occurs to me is how you kept on saying like your biggest tip to authors for many of these questions was to read that genre, to really get to know the what's out there. And I feel like the same is true with science. You know, you've got to read the other works, the other studies that people have done to understand what you should do next mm -hmm. to advance the field. Exactly. You know, you, you can't do it alone in isolation. Yeah, and that's a great point too, because a lot of people say, and it is, writing is a solitary action, right? And and a lot of people struggle with that. 
but I mean, you're not really alone because you have to do all this this reading and you're being accompanied by, you know, the authors that have come before you and you're you're drawing from them and you're learning from them. And then also you go out and engage with other writers. So uh, I don't I, think writing has to be as solitary as everyone makes it out to be. I love that idea of being accompanied by all of the other writers that you've read while you're writing your thing. That's just, that makes me so warm and cozy inside. <laughs> yeah, like you're not alone. You've got all of those voices inside your head with you. Yeah, you yeah. have the history of all other writers, all other authors. So I don't mean to, well, I guess I do mean to draw this parallel, but you know how much I did not like episodes seven through nine of Star Wars? <laughs> sure. But when I was talking about not being alone and being with the voices of all the authors who have come before you. It's literally the same scene where Rey is fighting Palpatine and she's uplifted by all those voices of the Jedi. Mm -hmm. So I guess that's one good thing that came out of that story. <laughs> Star Wars sequel. Uh, I love how we've touched upon basically every major franchise in our childhood. <laughs> we've hit Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings, Star Wars, Star Trek. Uh, this is really great. Lisa, I have just one last question for you here. Um, thinking back overall, if you had the pleasure of sitting down in real life with Ensign Bradward Boimler and could give him one word of advice for his next hollow novel, what would it be? Just one word. Oh, no, no, not one word. Not literally <laughs> one word, but like you, you had a conversation with him. Um... I think it would be to maybe use his flow a little bit more. Mm -hmm. I know that following his flow led to that God only spouting cheesy internet <laughs> quotes. So, but that should not discourage him from experimenting with it more. Because I think Boimler is so logical, rigid at times. Yeah. It sticks too strictly to rules. And there are a lot of quote unquote rules in writing. Mm. And so I think he would struggle with that when creating his next hollow novel. Novel, you know, he he needs to do this, and he needs to stay in this category, and he needs to do this, and and it's really hard for creativity to express itself when it's contained in these tiny little boxes, you know. So I think my advice would be to branch out a little bit more and go with the flow a little bit more. It's fine. It's fine to plot out things, but don't feel like you have to stay contained within your original idea. You know how Captain Freeman's engage quote is mm -hmm. warp me? Well, now I know what Captain Bucephalus Dagger's quote is. Pants me! <laughs> <laughs> You'll have to be careful with that one, too. Because, um, yeah, maybe don't be wearing pants when when you say that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Thanks so much for being on the podcast, Lisa. This has been so much fun. I learned a lot. Um, one last thing. If there is a listener out there who is trying to work on a novel or memoir or book of any kind and they would like to seek out your services, how could they do that? You can search for my website. I guess you could just type in Lisa Wong Editing, or the name of my website is called Soulful Editing, mm -hmm. and we'll also put the link in the show notes. Great. Well, thanks again, Lisa. This has been so much fun. Live long and prosper. Thank you so much, Mike. Live long and prosper. I feel so lucky to have Lisa for a sister. I know it's been a long road getting from there to here, but Lisa stayed true to her heart and worked so incredibly hard over many years to turn her lifelong love for books and stories into her career. And I am so, so proud of her. Look, I know next to nothing about the book editing industry. But from the way that Lisa talked about the craft of storytelling and the brilliant insights that she shared with us today, I'd be willing to bet that anyone in the world would be lucky to have Lisa edit their stories. No, anyone in the universe. So if you think that you are in the market for a literary editor, just check out Lisa's website. Again, the link is in the show notes. Don't forget that you can follow this show on Twitter at Science of Trek and myself at MikeWai, that's M-I-Q-U-A-I. 
If you like what you're hearing, rate us and review us, or just tell a friend about your favorite science and Star Trek podcast. Thank you so much, as always, for listening, and until next time, see you out there. What do you think is the best thing that mom cooks? I really like her chicken pot pie and her shepherd's pie. Oh my gosh, that's, that's so great. But that's because I'm a potato person.